Amen. I'm willing to bet if there's ever a Sunday and you were thankful we had a late service, it's today, right? Man, that alarm clock came pretty early this morning, uh, but uh, aren't, you, aren't you thankful too that we have an opportunity to be here and to worship like this? It is uh, spring break for many of our families. I told the first service you wouldn't know that by the weather. It feels more like Christmas break, but, uh, but I know many of our families are enjoying some time away. As Joe mentioned on the front end, we want to be mindful of all those who are, are traveling, but also we're just thankful that you're here and we can share in this time of worship. Uh, spring is just right around the corner, and uh, for me, when I think of springtime, I think of baseball. And I want to begin just by sharing with you a, a, one of my favorite baseball stories. It was the 1988 World Series. Uh, the Oakland Athletics and the Los Angeles Dodgers faced, against, uh, faced off against one another. Uh, in that series, the, the A's were the heavy favorites to win. Uh, the Oakland Athletics had won 104 games in the regular season. They swept the Boston Red Sox in the American League Championship Series, and so everybody thought they would just steamroll the Dodgers, but, but that's not the case. In fact, the, the critical moment in that year's World Series took place in Game 1 of that series. In the bottom of the ninth, the Dodgers were trailing by a run. They had a, a runner on base with two out, and they sent Kirk Gibson to the plate to pinch hit. Uh, Gibson was the Dodgers' most consistent offensive threat that year. He led the team in home runs. He went on to win the league MVP that year. But just right around the time the playoffs started, he, he started really suffering from some chronic leg injuries, actually shortened his career uh, by a great deal. And so by the time the series rolled around, he was limited to pinch hitting duty. But again, this is the moment that every little boy has, uh, has played out in his backyard. It's that moment where you're down a run in the bottom of the ninth. Only for Gibson, he had a chance to live this out. And so facing the Oakland Athletics Hall of Fame relief pitcher, Dennis Eckersley, and on a 3-2 count, no less, uh, Kirk Gibson actually had probably uh, the most memorable moment in World Series history. I just want you to see this. Some of you will, rem will remember it. All right, so a couple of things that are noteworthy about that clip that uh, will we'll set us up for today. Uh, the last line you hear there is from the Dodgers broadcaster, Vin Scully, and he says, in a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. This was just improbable. It, it was uh, impossible. Uh, Eckersley didn't blow a lead like this throughout the year, and yet here in the, in the final moments of the World Series, you see Gibson. If you, if you watch a swing, if you're a uh, you know, a baseball fan like I am, Gibson doesn't really have a good swing. I mean, he's out in front, he just kind of flicks his wrist and somehow gets enough of the ball to put it over the, over the fence. Um, you can see in a wider angle video of, of the, the, the shot that we just saw, the clip we just saw, you can see in a wider angle uh, clip of that, there are cars, there's a stream of cars outside 
in Dodger Stadium actually exiting. There are Dodger fans who wanted to get a jump on the traffic and, and beat people uh, home. And so as that ball is in the air and you hear the broadcaster announcing that this ball is going to go over the fence, you see about a dozen of those brake lights come on. People hit their brakes thinking, oh, we missed it. They're in the parking lot headed home. Uh, by the time Gibson rounds the bases, which took a while, and he makes it into the clubhouse, one of the Dodgers uh, trainers had actually taken a, a piece of tape and had taped over Gibson's locker with his name and had written in Sharpie the name Roy Hobbs from the movie The Natural, if you're familiar with that. It's every little boy's dream, and yet for Gibson it became reality. It's that last uh, line by Jack Buck, the radio broadcaster, that really is where I want to focus uh, our time this morning because he he makes this statement as as this, this improbable and impossible scene is being played out. Jack Buck says, I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I'm seeing being played out here on this grand stage in the World Series. And that sets us up well as we continue this study of daring faith today, because in the passage of Scripture we'll look at, we're going to talk about this this connection between believing and seeing. And in fact, these words will serve as, as a good way for us to think about the way that some people in this text are going to react to Jesus. There are some who are going to see what Jesus has done, this, this miraculous healing of a blind man. There are some who will see this, and yet they just won't believe it. For whatever reason, they won't believe in the miracle, and more importantly, they refuse to believe in Jesus. But where I want us to drive toward today is the, the, the declaration of the man who is healed here in John chapter 9, this blind man whose sight is restored, and he ends by saying, I was blind, but now I see. We're going to spend some time talking about that, and then at the end of the hour, we're going to sing those words together as well. But you have two responses. I don't believe what I just saw versus I was blind, but now I see question is, which response will be yours? We're going to look at John chapter 9, and I've said it now for several weeks. As we study through John, you can't just do this quickly. You can't just grab uh, a verse here in John and and take it out of context. In order for us to hear uh, the word of God in John, we have to really take it in its entirety. In John's gospel, you have these, these long sort of scenes, and so today we'll do the same thing. We're going to start in John 9, verse 1, and we'll make our way through, and, and we'll just take our time, and we'll let God's word guide us here. So you, you have it there in your Bibles. You'll see these words on the screen as well. This is the word of God from John chapter 9. As he went along, he being Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So Jesus and his disciples, they're they're walking along and they come across this man born blind. And it says there in the text a really critical point immediately that Jesus sees him. And I want to stop right there because I think that that is significant. I think there are some of us who come in here today and we need to hear this word. And maybe this alone is is what, what we need to hear right here. Jesus sees this man. 
In, in a world like his, in a world like ours, it is all too easy, isn't it, to overlook certain people. People with disabilities, people who are, are physically impaired for whatever reason, people who are hurting, people who, who don't just happen to jump off the page at us. You know, there are so many people in our lives where it is just easy for them to be overlooked. It's easy for us to be so consumed in our deal and what we have going on that we just don't notice people like this man right in front of us. And yet for Jesus, Jesus sees this man because Jesus always has eyes to see the overlooked and the forgotten. And so maybe you're here today. We just need to stop right here before we even really get going. Maybe we just need to say right at the front that maybe you're here and you feel like like this blind man maybe not physically but but maybe in in one context or another you feel like it's so easy for the people around you to overlook you that you just sort of slip through the cracks that you're a forgotten person and because everyone else in your life easily overlooks you and you're an easy one to forget that maybe that means God overlooks you and in God's eyes it's easy for him to forget about you maybe you've struggled in prayer and you've been trying to get an answer from God and and you just don't get it and so you think maybe maybe I'm not doing this right maybe God just has overlooked me or forgotten me maybe you feel neglected in one way or another and you need to hear this word that Jesus always sees us and there's something validating about that right from the get-go that jesus has the eyes to see the one who is easy to overlook and ignore in the kingdom of god no one should be easy to overlook and ignore jesus sees this blind man if you're here today and you relate to him in any way just know this he sees you too and so jesus sees this blind man his disciples see the blind man, but, but they don't see him the way God sees him. They don't see him for a person. No, they see an object lesson. <laughs> they see a theological question. So they see him, and then they turn to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, who sinned? You know, whose fault is this? Did he sin, or did his parents sin? And that, that kind of thinking, that either-or sort of deal, it's based in this idea that suffering is somehow punishment for sin. And apparently in the ancient world, the, the disciples and others like them subscribed to that mode of thinking. So the disciples say, who sinned? Was it him? Like in the womb? I mean, he was born blind, so I guess they thought maybe he, he, st- he struggled with something before he was born. I don't know. Or was it his parents? And Jesus says, neither. Guys, that's not the way this works. But he says, this happened so that the glory of God, the power of God might be demonstrated. And then Jesus says, we need to be doing the work of the one who sent me. He says, we. He doesn't say, this happened so that I could do the work of the one who sent me, although that's certainly true. But he says, we. We must do the work of the one who sent me. And so that idea of being sent is going to be really critical as we read through these next few verses. All right? Jesus decides, because he is the the light of the world, in order to demonstrate this, he heals this man. Let's read about this healing in the next few verses, starting in verse 6. Having said this, he spit on the ground and he made some mud with his saliva and he put it on the man's eyes go he told him wash in the pool of siloam this word means sent talk about that in a minute so the man went and washed and came home seeing his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg 
Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I'm the man. So Jesus rubs mud on the man's eyes. I'm not exactly sure why. It's just what Jesus does. He rubs mud on his eyes. He sends him to go and wash in the pool called Siloam, or we might translate the pool called Sent. So here again, we have this. Jesus is sent into the world by God the Father. He says that we collectively need to participate in the work for which he was sent. Then he spits in some dirt and rubs it on this man's eyes and sends him to go and wash in the pool called Sent. Okay? I think that'll pay off here at the end of, of, of our study here. And when this man goes back home, or maybe a better way to say it, when he is sent back home, people around him say, well, now wait a minute, aren't you the guy? They don't say, aren't you the guy? They say, isn't this the man? They're, see, they still don't talk to him directly because he's still easy to overlook and ignore. So they talk about him as if maybe he can't hear. <laughs> isn't this the man that we used to sit out there and beg? And some of them say, yeah, yeah, it looks just like him. And others say, nah, that's not him. There's no way. And the whole time he's over here kind of raising his hand saying, yeah, guys, that's that's me. I'm the one you're you're talking about. And they just ignore him. They say, no, no, it can't be him. He kind of had a freckle over here. "Eh, Well, he kind of does look like the guy. And And again, he's saying, guys, listen, it's me. I'm the one you're talking about. But they don't listen. And just because this man is healed his problems don't end. In fact, you could say his problems are just beginning because as we'll see in the next verse, they take him to the Pharisees. Look now in verse 10. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. That's important. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep Sabbath. But the others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. The blind man testifies that Jesus is the one who healed him. And throughout this story, he's going to be consistent on that point, that it was Jesus who healed him. But the neighbors determined that he needs to go before the Pharisees because, as we said, important issue here, it was a Sabbath day. And because Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath, the Pharisees determine that he is not from God. Some of the Jews in Jesus' day believed that if every Jewish person would keep the Sabbath day perfectly just one time, that the end would come. They believed that if every Jew just faithfully and perfectly kept the Sabbath, that that would usher in the end of time, that the kingdom of God would come in its fullness. And I tell you that because I think that's important for those of us who, who didn't grow up with a deep appreciation for Sabbath, at least the way that the Israelites tended to practice it and think about it. There were plenty of good reasons that the Pharisees were interested in keeping Sabbath. And so I think that's, that's helpful for us as we come across these Sabbath controversies in the scriptures. But all of that is not to make an excuse for the Pharisees because they refuse to see what is directly in front of them. Their obsession with Sabbath, and in particular, their interpretation of how to keep Sabbath, right? That interpretation blinds them to what is right in front of them. This man has been healed, and yet the Pharisees can't see that, and they can't see the work of God behind that. When it comes to daring faith, certainly in John's gospel, it is the blind who are usually the first to see. 
And it is those who claim to see who often have the hardest time seeing most clearly. Now we're going to look at the kind of the bulk of this passage, all right? We're going to read it's several slides. It starts in verse 17. We're going to go through verse 34, but like I've already said, we have to hear the story in its fullness. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this, they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Note the contrast between the daring faith of this man, blind man, healed man, His daring faith contrasts with the lack of faith coming from his parents. The healed man, again, consistently speaks about Jesus. He consistently says, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Here's what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. He says, I don't know so many times in this passage of Scripture, you know? I mean, they they come to him and they they say, okay, uh, where where is Jesus? He says, well... Uh, I don't know. Is Jesus a sinner? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Here's what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. But all the, 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 the ancillary questions that circle around this healing, they come to him and they press him and they say, okay, give us answers. And the man has to consistently say, you know, I, I, I don't have answers to your questions. All I know is what he did for me. All I know is I'm healed. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. And that leads us to this point, that daring faith Daring faith isn't about having the answers to every question. Oftentimes, it's simply living with this reality that that the questions outnumber the answers sometimes. Again, I'm back to this man. He says repeatedly, I don't know. There are questions he can't answer. And isn't that the way it is for us with, with the life of faith? You come to faith in Christ, you give your life over to him, and then, then you kind of want to know, okay, what, what is my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing? Where would you lead me? What, what would you have me do in this circumstance or that circumstance? And oftentimes, we don't know. We pray, we trust, 
We do the best we can. We read scripture. We talk to godly people. But there are some situations and some circumstances where we just don't have the answers we wish we had. With grief, with depression, with the circumstances we might be living with. You know, there are plenty of things that come up and we begin to wonder, what's the answer? Where do we go? What is this all about? Daring faith isn't about having all the answers all the time. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that he was often perplexed. He was perplexed. He's an apostle, and he didn't have all the answers to everything. He says, sometimes this stuff is confusing. I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm trusting you, Lord. But if Paul, as an apostle, doesn't have all the answers, if he's greatly perplexed at times, then don't you think that you and I are in good company when we don't have all the answers, at least not the answers we wish we had? So daring faith. The man doesn't have every answer, but he says, this is what I do know. He says, I don't know a lot, but I do know this. I was blind, but now I see. But that is not the case when it comes to the blind man's parents. No, when it comes to his parents, they're gripped with fear, aren't they? They're gripped with fear rather than faith. They're quick to give the right answer because they're afraid of what the wrong answer would cost them. Here's what I mean by that. They're quick to give the right answer. Uh, Yes, he's our son, and yes, he's healed. But you need to ask him because we don't want to give glory to Jesus. (laughs) Because John kind of winks at us off stage, and he says, they had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus would be kicked out of the synagogue. Literally, the word there is de-synagogued. They would be (laughs) de-churched. They didn't want to risk it. They didn't want to go through that. They say that in Judaism, there were degrees of synagogue excommunication. That the lightest could be declared by just one person, and it would last for a week, typically. So you get sideways with your brother, and, you know, he's wronged you or whatever, and you, you take it before the, the council, and you say, ah, he needs to be kicked, he needs to be put in timeout. You know, so a little slap on the wrist, okay, seven days, you, you can't come to the synagogue, Right? The second level was a little more serious. It required three people to declare this kind of excommunication, and it lasted for 30 days. And over the course of those 30 days, you know what? Your fellow Israelites, your fellow Jewish uh, brothers and sisters, they were not allowed to come within six feet of you. That's the middle level of excommunication. Kind of the ultimate, the atom bomb here, the most severe form, was a ban of indefinite duration... We'll tell you when you can come back, but we're not going to tell you right now. Persons under this ban were to be treated as if they were dead. Zero contact from anyone. Because the synagogue was so central to Jewish communal life. You can see, can't you? That to be excommunicated, to be de-synagogued, would be the most severe form of isolation. And these parents... They just simply don't want to dare that. But this man, this man who's been living kind of on the outskirts already, he's willing to because that daring faith is the counter to whatever fear might might be in his heart. Fear makes us weak because fear is Satan's great weapon that he uses against our faith. Gary talked about that early this year, that battle between fear and fear and faith and which one will win out we've we've confronted that same question repeatedly throughout our study of john here 
This fear makes these parents weak because when they're pressed, they cannot bring themselves to acknowledge Jesus as the source of of God's power. When they are pressed, they're not willing to risk what it would cost them to say the name of Jesus in their community. They're not willing to risk it. But daring faith says, I will stand on the name of Jesus and Jesus alone, no matter what. Imagine how many times these, these men, this, this husband and wife, imagine this. How many times do you think they prayed that God would heal their son? If it was your son and you were told he was blind from the day he was born, how many prayers would you pray? God, please give him it. Take my sight and give it to him. I'll do whatever you want. I will give you anything, Lord, just please. And when that moment finally comes and God finally answers that prayer and finally restores this man's sight, these two are too cowardly to even praise God because they're afraid of what man might do. They're afraid of what everyone else might think if they say the name of Jesus. They're cowards. Fear makes you a weaker version of yourself. But if that is true, on the flip side, faith makes you the most complete version of who God intended you to be all along because this blind man, bless his heart, he doesn't care. All he can say is, look, you have questions I can't answer. All I know is I was blind and now I see. And Jesus is the, is the, is the source. Jesus is the one who did this because he has daring faith. Daring faith counters these fears that are ever-present in this man's life, but also in ours as well. There's another point of contrast here before we go too far. And that contrast is between uh, this healed man, the sight of the healed man, and the blindness of the Pharisees. The healed man repeats his story over and over. I've, I've said it several times. He, his neighbors say, isn't this man who was born blind? He says, yes, but Jesus put mud on my eyes. I washed, now I can see. The Pharisees want to know, okay, how did that happen? He says, ah, Jesus put mud on my eyes. I washed, now I can see. Just like over and over, he keeps saying this uh, to, to the people. Jesus restored my sight. But on the other hand, the Pharisees, the Pharisees simply refuse to see this miraculous sign that is right in front of them. That's because in, in John's gospel, we've seen it by now, miracles are only signs for those who are willing to see them through the lenses of faith. Miracles are only signs for those who are ready to see them as such. We could say it this way, that in John's gospel, and especially when it comes to daring faith, seeing isn't always believing. But believing is always seeing. Remember last week we had the bread up here and we were talking about Jesus as the bread of life, Jesus as the one who, who offers himself up, he gives his body for many. And so we, we said, you know, Jesus performs this, this, miraculous, uh, this miraculous feeding found in all the Gospels. And, and those who saw that, they came back the next day, they told their friends and neighbors, they come out into the wilderness, and, and maybe some of them were expecting another meal. Maybe some of them were legitimately wondering what Jesus was going to say. But whenever they come out there, those same people who had seen that miracle, remember last week we talked about it, he says to them, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and many of them who saw turned away. And they said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And they did not follow Jesus anymore. We might say they did not believe. Now they had seen. They had seen with their own eyes. They'd filled their bellies with the food that Jesus had given. 
And yet, belief just remains right there on the horizon. It never becomes a reality in their lives. In the same way the Pharisees, they can see this man. They know he was born blind. Everybody in town says, yeah, this is him. His parents, yes, he was born blind, but you're going to have to ask him. And all he keeps saying is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But they refuse to see. Because seeing isn't always believing. But believing, the blind man who has the simple faith, when Jesus spits of all things and makes mud and smears it on his face, and he says, go wash that off, how much faith did it take from that man? He's probably going to go wash off anyway, wouldn't you? (laughs) But he goes and he does it the way Jesus tells him to. And the rest is history. Because that simple little mustard seed of faith, it turns into this gospel story for us. So again, two responses. I, I was blind, but now I see. Versus, I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what it is that I'm seeing. The question is, which one of those will you and I be? Well, the Pharisees have that man thrown out of the synagogue. And there's a little postscript to this story that we'll read and we'll wrap up. It starts in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. I don't know how he didn't recognize the voice of Jesus, but he certainly didn't recognize him by sight because he hadn't seen him yet. And Jesus says, you have now seen him. It's a powerful phrase. You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus finds this man who is once again an outcast. When we first found him, he was an outcast because he couldn't see. At the end of the story, he's an outcast because he can see. (laughs) But Jesus comes to him. And he reaches down and he asks him a question. And it's really the question. I think it's the question that this whole healing kind of points to. And he says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Messiah? And the man says, tell me everything you know about him (laughs) so that I can believe in him. And Jesus says, you have now seen him. And it works at a double level because one, yes, you have seen him with these physical eyes for the first time. These eyes that have been healed by Jesus. You have seen him, but even more pointedly than that, Jesus is saying, you have now seen me spiritually through these spiritual eyes. You are now seeing clearly for the first time the fulfillment of all those prophecies. People for generations, people have longed to just see a glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus says, you've now seen because I'm right in front of you. It's me. Just like the blind man said, I'm the man you're talking about. Jesus does the same thing. I'm the man you're talking about. And it says that the man worships. He says, Lord, I believe. And as we've said for weeks, that belief in John's gospel, it is trusting obedience. He's saying, I trust in you. I'm going to obey you. I'll follow you to the end of the earth because that's what it means to say Jesus is Lord. That's what it means to see Jesus clearly. When Jesus heals this man, he sends him, remember, to that pool of Siloam, sends him to the pool called Sent, and that's where this man finds his healing. 
And the man is later sent out of the synagogue by the Pharisees. But even that, I don't think, is the ultimate sending in this passage. No, no, the blind man is sent out into the world to testify to the one who restored his sight. He's sent out into a world of unbelief, into a world of darkness, into a world of blindness. He's sent into the same world you and I are sent into with this message of belief and sight. Because to see Jesus is to be sent. To see him clearly means that things can't just stay the same. We've been saying for weeks now, faith is not just something that takes place on the interior. It's not just a matter of mind and heart. But no, it moves out into the world. And so I like to think that this postscript is there to to call us to mind that, that this man had been kicked out of the synagogue, but he found real worship the day Jesus pursued him. And he falls down and he worships. And then, do you think his life was ever the same? Do you think he had any choice but to tell other people? How many people do you think came up to him and said, no, wait a minute. Again, weren't you the guy who was out there? Yeah, I was until Jesus. Let me tell you about him, right? And the same thing is true of us. Your conversion, your salvation story, it may not be nearly as dramatic as this man's. A few people can compete with this kind of story, right? But it doesn't change the fact that we too must be sent out into the world to participate in the work that Jesus left us to do. As Joe said, we went to two services so that we would have more room to share Christ with more people in this Tennessee Valley. Can we do that? Can we participate in the work that the Lord left us? Let's just share Jesus with one more person. The impact on the kingdom would be dramatic. Even if only one person responded to that, the impact in the kingdom of God, the glory on the streets of heaven would be euphoric. To see is to be sent. We're going to sing the words that this man has been declaring. I was blind, but now I see. There's a reason that Amazing Grace is perhaps the, the, the most beloved hymn, at least in the English-speaking world. I think that's fair to say. It's because it is a beautiful testimony to the power of grace, to the power of belief. The belief in Jesus gives us true sight. If you need to respond this morning, I hope you'll do that. You can do that just by sitting right where you are in many ways. There may be some things that you just need to take before the Lord during this time of worship. I hope you'll do that as we sing this song. Know that he sings that song over you of his amazing, enduring grace. If you need to share something publicly, some ways that we can be praying for you, some ways we can encourage you, uh, you know as well. You'll see your shepherds down front. You'll see them in the back of the room and even in the lobby. You can grab one of them privately and share whatever is on your heart with them. But if today, maybe for the first time, you need to declare, just like this blind man, I was blind, but now I see. Now I see who Jesus is. I want to I see Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. If you need to respond and declare that before this audience and the great cloud of witnesses beyond and walk into those waters to give your life over to Christ, we would love to share in that joy with you. If you need to respond in any way, I hope you'll do that. Let's sing of the amazing grace of our God. Let's stand.